and welcome to another episode of Gibraltar Stories. This is the final episode of three about this year's Gibraltar International Literary Festival, which took place last month. This episode includes a chat with just one author this time, the former BBC North Africa correspondent Richard Hamilton. He was in Gibraltar to speak about his latest book, Tangier, From the Romans to the Rolling Stones. The city of Tangier in Morocco, which you can see on a clear day from this side of the strait, has long been a magnet for artists, musicians and writers. Home for a time to Paul Bowles and Joe Orton, as well as a stop-off for some of the literary greats who were known as the Beat Generation, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs. It was in Tangier that Burroughs wrote The Naked Lunch and where Henri Matisse found inspiration for his work after experiencing the clear quality of the sunlight there. This was Richard's second visit to Gibraltar and the festival. He came over once before to speak about his previous book, The Last Storyteller's Tales from the Heart of Morocco, which we touched on briefly when we chatted. That publication came with royal approval from King Mohammed VI of Morocco. I caught up with Richard after he'd given his talk in the Gibraltar Garrison Library, the festival's headquarters. I started by asking him how his experience of this year's festival had gone. Oh, it's been great. I mean, it's very welcoming and I really didn't know much about Gibraltar and I'm still sort of learning, but it's so... It's the, the people are very warm and there's so much history here and this building where we're in now, the Garrison Library, you know, you can smell the old volumes of books and it's a beautiful setting and the festival's been so well organised that, you know, to be honest, I've been to other festivals in Morocco and things where it's a little bit chaotic, you know, and that's polite... But here everything's running like clockwork and every year they seem to learn, you know, they, they take the feedback quite seriously and they learn a lot and they work out how can they make this well-oiled machine work even better. So they've got it down to a fine art and it's really, they really look after the guests and so I felt very at home here. And it's nice coming back to somewhere that you'd been to before because I feel a little bit more familiar with the basic geography of it and things. So, but obviously... You know, I'm a, a newcomer. You spoke about your book predominantly about Tangier, from the Romans to the Rolling Stones. You've spent quite a lot of time in that part of Africa yourself, but what was it specifically about Tangier that made you want to write this book? Um, so I'd, when I was younger, I read uh, some of these American writers like Jack Kerouac on the road, and I thought they were pretty hip and all the rest of it. And then I'd heard that Tangier in the 50s was this slightly louche, debauched, gritty, slightly sort of, um, you know, slightly smelly place. But it was very creative. And there were these writers like uh, Paul Bowles and William Burroughs and then Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. And I saw this film uh, called The Sheltering Sky, which is based on a Paul, Paul Bowles novel. And I saw that in the 80s. So I had that sort of back story but I didn't know that was the limit to my knowledge of Tangier so as I said in my talk when I first went there I wasn't particularly blown away by it because it was raining and I was getting a connection from the train station I was getting a cab from the train to the ferry to go over to Tarifa and I wasn't particularly impressed with Tangier I thought this is a rather drab place but of course I I was in the cab for 10 minutes and I only saw a section of the city and then 
as I started, I started doing some reports for the BBC about it when I was, so I was a correspondent in Rabat in 2006 and 2007. So I started to do some features, and one was about Tangier applying to hold the Expo, the world sort of cultural conference in, I think it was going to be in 2010 or 2012 or something. And they didn't succeed, so it's just where these international cities pitched to hold the World Expo. But anyway, they were already at that stage, there was a lot of energy and excitement about turning Tang a renaissance of Tangier. So I started to do some reports, and then I just thought, you know, I love this place, and I'd love to know more about it. So my passion for it grew slowly. It started off as a slow burner. In fact, it, it wasn't love at first sight at all. You know, it was slightly... Ooh, I don't know about this place. And then, you know, as I found out more and more, and I'm still learning, you know, so probably a bit like what you find in Gibraltar. There's still so much history and so many stories and so much to find out. Definitely. Now, you mentioned in your talk that you, somebody had said to you, you should only believe half of what you're told in mm. Tangier. Do you believe you've, you've hit the truth? <laughs> um, probably not, but where, where I've told stories that may be sort of urban myths, um, I've, I've, accre I've accredited, accredited it to somebody, so I've quoted someone, and then I've often put a little caveat saying, but they told me they didn't check the story, or, you know, they, they said that maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe it's part of the, the mythology of the city. So uh, it's called From the Romans to the Rolling Stones, but the first chapter is about Hercules uh, splitting the mountains apart to create Gibraltar on one side and, the, and Jebel Musa, the mountain in Morocco, to create the pillars of Hercules. So we start with a myth. And in a way, as the book carries on to modern times, there are still a lot of little myths going on. So <laughs> some of it might be sort of fake news, but I've, I've put health warnings next to some of those stories to say, this is what someone told me, but let's perhaps take it with a pinch of salt. You also mentioned in your talk that it was, you felt it was important to capture oral history, certainly from your previous book um, about the last storytellers, before these people are lost and these memories are lost forever. So it's, it's almost like a service that you're providing. I suppose so. I mean, I didn't realise that until I'd finished the Tangier book, but that was definitely, for the first book, which I'll just explain to listeners, is a... a collection of traditional oral, oral stories from Marrakesh that have been handed down for generations and some of them had never been written down and the storytellers in Marrakesh were all in their 70s and 80s and there was no new generation of storytellers coming through. So I was definitely consciously trying to preserve that heritage. With Tangier, I didn't set out to record oral histories but as I talked to people and interviewed people, I realised that the sort of golden age of Tangier was probably in the 1950s. So, as, as I said, my maths isn't very good, but that means that some of the elderly generation have these wonderful anecdotes of Tangier in the 50s when all these different nationalities lived together. And it was a unique time in history. And so there, even today, actually, people coming up to me after the talk said, I, as a child, I remember you know, living in Tangier and getting a chip butty on the beach or whatever... And, you know, so there's such a treasure, as, as I'm sure you are trying to do with your podcasts here, you know, people's stories, uh, trying to capture them, you know, is something I'm very passionate about. And I, I didn't deliberately, as I say, set out to do that with Tangier, but it's sort of, there's actually a lot of similarities 
between the first book and the second book in a way because you know these people told me these anecdotes about the city and that's I think in the end that's what makes a city it's not so much the monuments or the streets or the architecture although that's all part of it it's that intangible storytelling and myth making and personal histories and that's uh, there's no, I don't I can hardly think of anywhere in the world that is as rich with such a mixture of and everyone's history is sort of different so the, the, a lot of my people in my book are English writers or American writers but I'm sure if you were a Spanish historian you could write a Spanish history of Tangier or a French history or a Moroccan history you know so that every everyone that comes at it comes at their own perspective so there is no objective history of Tangier all you can do is is try your best and you know as I say put a little warning when someone tells you that you know Kenneth Williams dressed up as the Queen Mother or whatever that 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 may not have been true but it's almost too good to say to leave it out to leave it out so these are little gems you know and they're part of the urban mythology of Tangier now, you mentioned so many writers um, visiting there and spending time there. What was it about Tangier specifically that attracted so many creative people from all, all walks of life and places in the world? So there are two things, really. One is a geographical anomaly that uh, Tangier is on a promontory between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. So from an artistic point of view, it's, this is a highly sought-after geographical feature that you get the light reflecting off the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, and it bounces off these two oceans, and so you get very, very sharp, clear light. And artists have, from early days, um, you know, uh, people like uh, Edgar Degas and Eugène Delacroix and Henri Matisse, these French uh, artists, they were a bit bored with Paris, and they wanted to explore something that was exotic. And so it's part of this sort of fascination with the Arab world and Orientalism. So that was one you know, side of things. The other thing was there's a historical anomaly that, that Tangier was part of this international zone. So from the 1920s to the 1950s, it was ruled by about half a dozen different nationalities. Uh, so there were all these people from all over the world, and they came together. And you know, to be honest, some of it was quite illegal and quite unpleasant. And you know, this is the sort of seedy side of it. And there's something about ports as well that I think I've always... I mean, that could be a whole other book, but that, that, but that ports seem to attract outsiders and adventurers and people that are washed up. And so you'll get prostitution and stuff and drug-taking. And, I, you know, you, you can't write about Tangier without admitting that some of this rather unpleasant stuff happened. But th- this has attracted uh, quite avant-garde writers like William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac because they, they wanted to uh, escape their rather stuffy, uh, regimented world that they'd come from. And the same with some of the British people, like uh, Joe Orton, who was a gay playwright. In the, ni- in the 1960s and 50s, it was illegal to be homosexual in Britain and America. So these people came to Tangier, where there was free drugs and sex, basically. So you can't pretend that it was always highbrow reasons, but at the same time, you've got all these writers and artists and musicians and people, and they must have fed off each other, and they were also inspired by Moroccan storytelling. So that's another important part. So uh, the Moroccan storytellers inspired people like Paul Bowles to write these quite weird novels. And so it was a bit like magic realism that you get in South America. So 
you get the influence of Morocco and that, that in turn influenced music and art and fashion. And so some of these interior designers came to Tangier in the 60s and they took back their caftans and rugs and stuff and they brought them to places like the King's Road in London. And they were part of the swinging 60s. So they transformed a rather grey, depressing Britain post-war and turned it into this colourful rock and roll place. And, and you can trace that back to Tangier. So there's, our heritage, it, we owe a lot to Morocco, basically. You mentioned that as a, as a young man you'd read a lot of the Beat Generation. What was it like retracing their steps? You mentioned trying to track down the room where, where William Burroughs had written The Naked Lunch in a particular hostel. What was it like to follow in their footsteps? Um, it was very frustrating, and I don't, I don't know if you know Morocco well, and I don't, I don't know Gibraltar well enough to know what it's like trying to interview people or track people down but it's probably easier here in Gibraltar but in Morocco things are never quite they don't go to clockwork it's not like you're living in Switzerland so you you arrange to meet someone and they don't turn up and then you say what happened and they go oh you know I was not feeling well or did you not uh, want to tell me oh inshallah we will meet tomorrow and so this, and then I found I was explaining in my talk that trying to get into these places was quite difficult and frustrating. So I had to be quite uh, persistent and knock on a lot of doors and try to be quite guileful and not telling lies, but doing my best to charm people to open up doors and stuff. So it was a fascinating and in the end very rewarding journey but it was quite frustrating and I found the same with my first book as recording these stories from the storytellers but they weren't the most reliable people in the world there was a lot of manana manana there was a lot of African time and there was a lot of sort of like oh I'll tell you a story but you've got to give me a hundred dirhams and I was like you know so there was a lot of haggling with the first book it wasn't I didn't have to sort of bribe people in Tangier but I had to sort of try and charm them so it was quite a tricky journey, but I think in the end that makes for good writing, the obstacles. Yes. If everybody just turned up day one and said, yeah, fine, this is his hotel room. That the fact you've had to fight to Yeah, yeah, so I think that, that makes it more... At the time, I didn't always see it like that. You know, sometimes I flew back to London empty-handed, thinking that was a waste of time. <laughs> but, you know, on the whole, I think that the unfolding and the journey is part of it. You mentioned a rather lovely anecdote about uh, Brian Jones, Marianne Faithful, and another individual who uh, flew into uh, Gibraltar en route to Tangier and uh, had an interesting experience with our, our furry neighbours up the rock. That's right. Um, so in 1967, Brian Jones and Keith Richards, they were escaping from a drugs bust in Sussex. The police had been tipped off that the Rolling Stones were in Keith Richards's house in Sussex, they arrested them, and the trial was coming up. And there was this was the 19, late, sorry, 1967. So there was a lot of interest in the Rolling Stones, and there was this sort of clash between the old establishment and these rebellious young generation of 60s daredevils. And before the trial came up, uh, the Stones decided to get away from the paparazzi. So Keith Richards and Brian Jones and Anita Pallenberg, who was Brian Jones's girlfriend and a couple of others all drove down in Keith Richards' Bentley, and they drove all the way down to Gibraltar, and then from there on eventually to Tangier and Marrakesh. And when 
as part of, it's a long story, but I'll cut it short. At one point, they go to Gibraltar and they go up, they get a cab up to the top. Because I don't know about the history of the cable car, but this may have been before you got a cable car, I'm not sure. But they got up to the top and Brian Jones and Marianne Faithful, who was Mick Jagger's girlfriend, and she'd been involved in this drugs bust, they decided that it would be a laugh to drop acid on their plane from London or Gatwick or wherever it was to Gibraltar. And so by the time they got off the plane, they were completely hallucinating, but they still decided it would be a laugh to go up to the top of the rock. And Brian, uh, Anita Pallenberg had recorded a weird soundtrack for some German movie that was very hard, you know, a hard watch. And I haven't got the name in front of me, but it was something... Sonnentorschlag or something, some sort of German word. So she'd sung some of the lyrics to this weird avant-garde piece of German musical extravaganza. And Brian Jones had a cassette, uh, tape recording of it. I don't know if it was a cassette. They went up to the top of the rock. They approached the monkeys. Brian Jones bowed in front of the monkeys very ceremoniously, pressed the button and played this weird music at which point the monkeys started screaming and ran away. And Brian Jones, because again, he was, he, was quite, uh, he was a genius, but he was quite fragile, he started sobbing. And that, so this is all the sort of mixture and these stories that... But this is basically what happened to him in Morocco. He started to sort of unravel, but at the same time, because he's very creative, he recorded local Moroccan music and tried to incorporate that into rock and roll. So he was, again, years ahead of his time, and the rest of the Stones were a bit like, what do you want to record this for? You know, we want to stick to our rhythm and blues. So, but later on, they actually took some of Brian Jones's music and incorporated it into uh, Rolling Stones' music. So there's, again, the influence of Tangier, uh, is it, there's a huge musical influence as well. And that, that little anecdote is quite bizarre. One of the more, the weirder vignettes of a, quite a weird life. Definitely. <laughs> now, you mentioned at the end of your talk that, you know, there was such a connection between Gibraltar and Tangier. Maybe even there's, there's an opportunity to, in, you know, investigate a book there. Yeah, I think that would be a whole other book. And I wouldn't, de- you know, I've met so many knowledgeable and wonderful people here. I wouldn't dare to pretend to know even the slightest about the history of Gibraltar. But already in the few days I've been here, people have been telling me, you know, about their childhood and how they used to go to Tangier and and even now they'd love to have more connections between the two but you can st- it's very easy to get on the ferry and and that weirdly they were even talking and this never happened but it's a very Tangier story they were talking about building a tunnel between Morocco and Spain and for, again for the BBC it was about 10 years ago I went down the shaft of this tunnel and there were people drilling into the rock and it never it never came off so that would have been Extraordinary that if you could have a tunnel connect. So I like to think that Hercules split Europe and Africa apart with you've got Gibraltar and Jebel Musa, and then this tunnel was trying to bring Africa and Europe together again. So they, you know, that would be, have been quite a nice sort of book ending to the story. But uh, as in Tangier, not everything always turns out how they expect. My thanks to Richard for speaking to me for Gibraltar Stories. His book, Tangier, From the Romans to the Rolling Stones, is a fascinating read, both in terms of the place and the interesting characters who've passed through it. That's all from the Gibraltar International Literary Festival for this year. If you'd like to find out more about it, you can find a link to the festival website in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Richard's website as well. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to this episode and for taking an interest in Gibraltar's stories. If you enjoyed the podcast and could find the time to leave a review on your chosen podcast provider or share it on social media, I'd be extremely grateful as it'll help other people find the podcast more easily in future. You can listen back to any of the previous episodes on GibraltarStories.com as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. And if you have a Gibraltar story that you'd like to share, please get in touch with me through Facebook, Instagram or Twitter or through the Gibraltar Stories website. Gibraltar Stories is presented, produced and edited by me, Lindsay Weston. Until next time, goodbye for now and thank you very much for listening.